Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we were joined by Kofi Bruce, the Chief Financial Officer of General Mills. General Mills is a Fortune 200 leading multinational manufacturer and marketer of food products with more than 35,000 employees and $17 billion in revenue in 2020. Kofi's held a variety of financial roles at General Mills before becoming the CFO over the last 12 years. And before that, Kofi did stints at Ecolab and the Ford Motor Company. He holds a bachelor's in international relations from Stanford University and an MBA from the Ross Business School at the University of Michigan. Today, Kofi and I spent the bulk of our time discussing values and people-centric leadership, including leadership during COVID and what it was like to navigate so much uncertainty. In addition to that, we discussed finding authentic leadership in a corporate setting. And lastly, we also discussed diversity in the financial services industry. Kofi is an incredible thinker, a amazing leader, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let us know what you think on LinkedIn, Instagram, or shoot us an email at hello at scholarsoffinance.org. And don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review, and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues if you find it valuable. Kofi Bruce, sir, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast. Um, How are you doing today, and where is this call finding you? Well, I'm doing fine. I'm actually working from Denver, Colorado today. I see. And what brings you to Denver? I have uh, my wife and my youngest son live here now. And he, my youngest son is going to an autism-focused charter academy here in, in town. So I'm, I'm telecommuting. I work uh, about a week a month here in Denver so I can see my family. And uh, the other three weeks of the month, I'm in Minneapolis. Very cool. Very cool. And it's awesome that you're able to find that school in Denver. Um, your other son is going to college in Denver as well. So it all works out perfectly. Yeah, it works out perfectly. Three three out of the four members of my household are, are here in Denver. And, and um, you know, say what you want. The, there are worse places to, to, to visit and spend time. It's absolutely beautiful here. And uh, I think that the one sort of benefit of the pandemic is that we've all learned we can work from uh, – uh, just about anywhere, uh, at least anywhere where there's a, a good internet connection. So um, this is possible uh, with flexible and hybrid work arrangements. Amazing. Amazing. I'm glad you're enjoying it out in Denver. One of my best friends lives there. It's a beautiful city. Um, well, Kofi, I'm excited to dive right in. Um, we have less than an hour today for this in- episode of the Investing in Integrity podcast. I've been so, so excited to have you on the podcast. Um, you and I have had a number of conversations. You've become an, a very close mentor, friend, supporter of Scholars of Finance. And I've just been dying to have you come and share your insights with the rest of our community. Um, so I don't hog you all to myself. Before we get into what will be a wider conversation about leadership and values, among a few other topics, I'd like to just start off by discussing your career arc from a macro perspective. So for the listeners, can you just start by walking through your career up to this point, a little bit about your story and background? Sure. Well, it, it probably helps for me to rewind to high school, where when I, when I entered college, uh, I was certain 
that I wanted to be an ambassador when I grew up, quote unquote. And I, I, I'm using air quotes, which doesn't work on a podcast, but just imagine it. Uh, and so I was, I was in my mind, um, you know, on a path to study international relations, um, probably go, go to the Peace Corps after, after, after college for a couple of years, come back, get a master's and a PhD in international affairs, and then go work for the World Health Organization or the UN, um, or, or the U.S. State Department. So those, that was kind of my thinking. And, you know, like most plans when you're when you're 17 and 18 you've got it all neatly laid out in a line and there's a linear progression and it's a straight line from where you sit to where you end up when you're ancient at at 45 years old or whatever you imagine it it, it means to be grown up and have arrived and and that's just not the way my career played out um, in, in part because other paths opened up along the way um, circumstance brought me to, to certain opportunities. And, you know, one of the things that happened was um, I did follow the first part of the plan, studied international relations. Um, I actually went through Peace Corps interviews and then I needed to find something to do for about nine months. Um, you know, and I had pay bills while I was waiting for the Peace Corps um, posting to come. And uh, so I took a job in, in the private sector or work in mortgage in mortgage banking. And I found there were a lot of skills um, that I had that were, were useful, around project management, um, collaboration, but, you know, primarily around people leadership and organizing against an objective and driving, you know, and seeing something from, from finish, uh, from beginning to, to finish. And I actually found that um, strangely seductive. And so, you know, I started rethinking over the course of those nine months, whether or not I wanted to go to the Peace Corps and then ultimately kind of passed on going to the Peace Corps and said, well, I'll, I'll do this for another year and then apply to, you know, then I'll go to grad school. So I, I kind of went through a transition there as well as I, I got into year two. I thought I was really enjoying it. I, I was actually good at business and, and you know, lo and behold, um, even though I come from a family of people who, were, who do, you know, kind of more public oriented and social oriented um, enterprise that, you know, I, I was enjoying actually the corporate world. It wasn't actually evil, um, that, that organizations are full of people and people um, who have values and that you, you can do good even if you work in the corporate environment. So for me, uh, a lot of it was, you know, is there a way for me to find an authentic path that works for me in, 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 in corporate America? And I ultimately, you know, kind of let go of my dream of, of going down the road of becoming, you know, an ambassador or working for the UN, in part because what I saw was a road where I'd be writing you know, white papers for somebody who might might be in a room to influence the person who might make the decision, um, as opposed to one of the things that I really enjoy about business. You're 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 forward. Um, you're working problems forward, and and you are you know principal in that. So that was ultimately what got me to business school. And you know, it's not like I went in at any point and declared I need to. I would like to be a, a public company chief financial officer. I, I wouldn't have known what that was when I was 17 for all the reasons that I, I talked about. And, you know, for me along the way, it was, I had good mentors, um, good advocates and good sponsors who at times saw more for me than I did and put an open doors for me to take opportunities that set me up with a set of experiences that made me a, a viable candidate ultimately for the CFO role that I, I now sit in. Um, so it, it is, um, 
you know, it, it, it looks neat on paper. Um, but I will tell you, like, like anybody's career, most people aren't necessarily doing exactly what they thought they'd be doing when they were 17. And um, I'm certainly a good example of being open to new paths um, and open to, to doors that, that may appear um, along the way that weren't, weren't expected and having the curiosity to explore them if your interest takes you there. I can definitely relate on the the notion that I'm also not where I was. Uh, I'm not where I expected to be when I was 17 years old. <laughs> if you had told me I'd be a CEO and co-founder of a nonprofit when I'm 30, I would have laughed at you at that time. Right, but, um, but, but, but at the same time, you're quite fulfilled by what you're doing, right? I mean, and, Oh, deeply and, fulfilled. And you followed a passion that you didn't know you had at the time. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I think that your, your, your career arc and you and I've talked about it is a perfect example of that as well. And that you found something that, you know, fulfills your, your head, your heart and your soul at the same time, um, even though it, it, it's not the path you're on. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you'd tell anybody listening that it's not easy, but um, you probably don't regret it. Zero regrets. Um, economic sacrifice, all the things that one could regret, no regrets whatsoever. I wanted to ask you, can you pinpoint for me the aspects of General Mills that differentiated it from other companies that led you to building out your career there long-term? Because you've had a number of roles at a number of firms, sure. but you've really had staying power at General Mills. We'd love to hear more about what drove that and what's driven the, the excitement about the firm. I had the privilege of working at uh, three great companies over the course of my career. The first of which was Ford Motor Company, which is a tremendous place to learn those foundational finance skills. Um, I was there six years and in six years had seven different roles. Uh, and it's, it's really was a model that I think helped me develop the confidence um, that I could have, uh, I could be in any situation and learn the skills necessary to become effective um, in a very short period of time. And the beauty of that was that that put me in a position to, to move on to be successful at Ecolab and then ultimately at General Mills. And, and your question about why General Mills and why, why have I been at General Mills 12 years? Um, I've been there longer than the other two companies combined. The, the reason for that is, is the culture. Um, you, you pick a lot of things when you decide to work uh, in a place or in an industry. Um, you know, lifestyle sometimes is part of that for sure. You know, if you go into nonprofit versus for-profit. But, you know, candidly, one of the most important things that people talk about the least is corporate culture. And that, for me, foundationally was one of the reasons why I, I selected General Mills. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I talked to, to people, um, I talked to probably 20 plus people along the way in my, my journey to General Mills. And, and what I learned was um, the amount of time that people spent talking about people, how energized they were by the, the, the strength of the people around them, how that made them better um, as, as technical professionals, but also made them better business professionals. Um, how strong uh, the the ethics were around everything from you know financial statements and the core things, but but also the way and the belief that the power of people in teams could unlock um, and solve almost any any major issue um, the the company uh, confronted. And you know, for me, I found that. I actually, they probably undersold it um, a little on the front when when I came into the organization. 
And I found that to be true. And that's that's every time I have I have questioned whether or not I should be at General Mills, that has been the thing that has pulled me back into its orbit. Is that I have been hard pressed to see and find other places where the culture is that strong, uh, where the ties between um, employees, uh, leadership, and the center of the organization around a, a set of values and a mission and purpose mm-hmm. are as tight. Um, and and that is, you know, I think for me, probably one of the things that differentiates it. I could have made more money, um, certainly in other industries, but but even at other companies potentially. Um, but that was not the primary thing that motivates me. You spend, you know, 60, 70% of your waking hours at, at work. Um, I think it's really important that you pick a place that you don't dread going into. But more important, if you are energized to go in and work with and, and, and motivated by not letting those people down, motivated by winning with that team, um, it's a very powerful thing. And it should not be taken lightly in, in your calculus as you think about where you want to work. I love it. I love it. And I want to actually pivot the conversation a little bit. That's a perfect segue into, I think, the crux of our conversation, which is values-based leadership, people-based leadership, authentic leadership, something that you've thought about a great deal over decades and that we've talked about a lot. And I think you always have really, really salient insights on. In a recent video that you did with the Aspen Institute, you brought up that almost immediately after you stepped into your role as the CFO of General Mills, the pandemic hit. And in the video, you speak to the fact that there was no playbook for COVID, um, which released expectations and really enabled you to lead authentically. And knowing that you were overseeing over 1,200 employees at the time, would love to hear the story of how authentic leadership bared out for you mm-hmm. and what authentic leadership meant to you uniquely in that time? How did, how did you employ it? What did it look like? What were the results? Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's fascinating. If you, if you think about kind of some of the, the old models of leadership, right? There's this, this, this person or figure at the top of an organization, a function, whatever, um, that has all of the answers and the wisdom and the experience and knows exactly what to do in every situation and is never beset by fear or any of the sort of normal human foibles or challenges that we, we all know we confront, right? And there's, there's an expectation that that's projected at all times and in all circumstances. And I think that's, that's part of what I was kind of getting at is, um, you know, going into my role, I followed somebody who'd done the job for 13 years was, you know, if, if it just by frame of reference, that's probably close to almost three times the tenure of, of, of your average public company CFO. So a long time, um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> certainly by, by any, any relative measure. And was a known fixture in the analyst community, certainly within the company and frankly in the broader community. So you follow somebody like that, it is very easy to focus on the places that you're different and the places where maybe you, you don't have strengths where this person did and and um, maybe be worried that the places where you have strengths though will not be appreciated um, by contrast. And, and I think that the benefit of going into to COVID was all of the time and energy that, that maybe I would have put in or frankly even others um, from outside would have put into figuring out, well, how am I different than my predecessor or where are the... What are the things that, you know, maybe he's uncertain about? 
The benefit of COVID was that nobody was certain about anything. And the minute I figured that out, the minute I saw that CFOs who I was talking to had been in jobs for 15 years and those who'd been in, in role for five months or two and a half, um, in my case, you know, they, they, really, they really didn't have the answers. There wasn't a playbook that they could pull out and say, well, here's what we do, and then we do this, and then, and then after that, we do this. We were all trying to figure it out together, and I realized, okay, well, we're all kind of starting from the same spot. And I, I have, I have the, the rest of this is going to fall back on the, on the strengths I already have around being able to speak clearly, um, speak from a place of values, um, to frankly just show up at some level as, as, as a human being who's also dealing with this on a human level at a time when, when people in our organization and the broader community in the world were, were afraid, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the observation at the center of, of, of why I kind of got into a state of, okay, well, I can, I can work through this. This actually plays to my strengths because one of the things I picked up was that learning agility from my time at Ford. Um, the, the fluency of being able to go into an unknown situation and start to figure out what matters and where, where to lean and where to, where to push. That's super interesting. So really tactically, you know, think for our listeners who are trying to lead authentically right now, uh, tell me about some of those conversations that you had, right? Some of those strategies, some of those tactics, it sounds like you really leaned into embrace the, you know, confront the brutal facts as Jim Collins would say, there's ambiguity, there's uncertainty, have to embrace it and have to navigate it. And then once you have this clarity and now you're going to your team, uh, tell us what, what was your leadership style? How did you lead in that time? What were some of those strategies and tactics that you you employed and that you found were really effective? Yeah. Well, I think, I think the first is you just had to be over-indexing on communication and listening, right? So the, the combination of those two. Listening um, in particular for where people are at, um, you know, I, I'd say you went through a lot of cycles during the pandemic, you know, the early phase of fear and, you know, just a lot of discretionary effort from everybody, kind of always on, all the time, working the issues to something close to exhaustion because people started to realize this was a long, a longer haul than we thought, right? It, it wasn't, we were working from home for a couple of weeks and in lockdown for a couple of weeks, it was like, oh, this is gonna turn into months and maybe even a year, right? Um, and I think, you know, listening to people and being able to understand, okay, well, what people are right now need attention to is, is maybe their exhaustion. Not They, they know what to do. I, they don't necessarily need me um, doing things other than clarifying. These are the two or three things that are most important, they, but they know how to go do their jobs. They, what they need is, is help and permission to do the things that, that help feed their self, restore energy, um, get, get refocused and repurposed, you know, and, and, and it was different at different points of, of the pandemic. So you have to be listening for that. So, you know, you can't go into that with a fixed mindset. Um, and then the other is you have to always be, you know, for me, what it was, was I, I found I had to communicate twice as much as I was comfortable with um, and communicate from both a place of clarifying and simplifying things that, we needed to do on the practical side, but also speaking to some of the challenges of the moment. So for example, when Ahmad Arbery was killed, 
right? And when uh, we we had um, George Floyd in in Minneapolis uh, was killed, those were points at which I, I stepped in and had to to speak to the fact that these were were issues that people were now carrying in the background of an already stressed time, and you could see that it was wearing on people the 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 social distress at a time of you know, all of this unrest and disruption due to the pandemic. Um, and so I processed that at a very human level personally, but I also felt it was important for me to show that to people too, as I was communicating. Um, so things such as, you know, I, 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 I would also record, uh, I recorded a couple of videos during that, that period. One of which I, I read the Langston Hughes poem and, and talked about the impact some of these events were having on me personally as as a black American, but also kind of tried to find uh, uh, the points of things that I found optimism in, in 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 what was kind of a dark period. And, you know, that later turned into a conversation later in the year about Asian hate, you know, rising anti-Semitism. There, there were a lot of points along the year. If you look at the the, the past year and a half where. We, I had opportunities to speak authentically to the organization as an individual and show up as an individual first and provide that vulnerability because that opens the door for people to say, okay, well, I don't also have to show up as an automaton to work. I, I can, these things impact me and it's okay that they impact me. And mm -hmm. actually putting people in a place where we can have that conversation at work, I think made them feel more engaged um, as a result of having a place where that kind of that kind of vulnerability was allowed, um, where those kind of courageous conversations were allowed, where people could say, you know, look, this kind of thing happened to me, or this is what I'm experiencing. Here's how I'm processing this. Because the reality mm -hmm. is, even in the old construct, uh, where where you know people show up, you just do the job and you don't talk about anything else. People are still processing these things. They just kept them hidden. And that extra burden in particular on people who are experiencing them on a personal level is a lot to ask. Um, and it's a lot to ask, especially, especially at a time when you have so much fear um, broadly in the environment due to the pandemic. It's so interesting. This level and the degree of empathy that you approach the situation with. Um, vulnerability, I think, being a key a key insight there as well. Over indexing on communication. One really practical question that I want to ask your for your thoughts on for our listeners' sake is how one can find their authentic leadership style. You know, do you think it's a process of trial and error? Is it taking your disc profile test and then working towards your strengths? Is it working with a coach? Is it some gradual process of insights that compound over time into this self awareness or a new sense of self? I mean, I'm I'm personally a believer that. With honest intention, good strategy, and real effort, we can accelerate the process of becoming self-aware and understanding ourselves authentically. I'm curious for what, in your experience, has been most beneficial, most effective for identifying your authentic leadership style. Well, I, I think I think that what you just articulated is actually very, very insightful, and and probably closer to what I believe um, in terms of. You know what? Finding your your authentic side—it's it's unique for everybody, right? I I think mm -hmm. I will. The one thing I will tell you is it's not comfortable, um, because if it's comfortable, you, you're you're probably um, you that tells me you're probably not really putting yourself 
out there in some capacity. I don't think everybody on my on my leadership team would necessarily process issues the way I do. And therefore, what would be authentic for somebody else um, who's a peer of mine is not going to look like what I show up with. But it it actually has the same currency and value if they show up with it because people can see them being in, intentional and putting energy into it. And, you know, if it is something that allows them to both be more accessible as a leader and connect with people differentially, um, I, I think that's what you're looking for. And I, you know, I can't answer for you what it is, or, or I can answer what it is for me. I do think it is, it is learned and practiced more important than anything. Um, and, and you won't get it right. Um, you will, you will find that not everybody also responds to it the same way. <laughs> I mean, that's always the challenge of leadership is that's why I think being authentic is important is, is that not everybody's going to like everything you do all the time. You just are, you, you're comfortable with, if you're comfortable with that, then, then as a leader, the, it works on, on this principle as well. Right. So you will try things that you think are in, in, in advancing your authenticity. Um, and if if it works, you know, keep practicing it. And if you're finding it's not working and it's not connecting, then, you know, get feedback. Um, that's that's the tough part about being leaders. You 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 get lots of opportunities for feedback. Um, you usually have to ask for them <laughs> and then you have to be open to, to, to changing. And, and I think that's. That's the hard part is you're on a very public stage in some ways and you going through a process of I'm trying to get better at this and you told me I'm not as good at this as I thought, right? Um, and then doing something with that and practicing it, it it's all in public. Um, so I think that's where the point of vulnerability um, comes from because I think if, you, if people see you're doing it, it's earnest. Um, and it comes from a place of, of positive intent. Uh, I think you're going to get you're, you're you're probably closer to the mark than um, than not. That's really really helpful. I think this notion that it takes practice. It's learned. Um, we have to grow self aware. We have to understand what uniquely works for us and lean into that. I would say in my own personal early leadership journey, and I'm you know very, very early in my leadership journey still, um, if I can even claim to be on one at this point, um, that I found embracing the fact that not everyone will agree with your plan or your path, that was really, really difficult in the beginning. Yeah. And I think where I found solace, and I talk to our students a lot about this, is you know, as you kind of grow from adolescence, teenage, early twenties, you know, you're, you're insecure, you're riddled with questions, worried of what other people will think about you, public opinion and perception. And we see people in our lives, adults who seem to have this clear grounded confidence. And I remember at a young age wondering where that came from. And the best answer I found so far is in mission values principles, right? Being very, very thoughtful and intentional about who, who I am and what I stand for. And making that choice consciously, right? Mm -hmm. Choosing my identity, choosing my values, choosing my principles, not just being a product of my environment. And then in those moments of uncertainty, I have those values and principles that I can lean into that I, I have a one page document. I go on a silent retreat every six months and I spend two days with it to refine it and, and curate it, make sure that it is the best reflection of the leader that I want to be. And we've talked about these retreats a lot um, with our friend, with Chris Ferellis, you know, with uh, a number of people in our community. Um, 
but I know that values-based leadership is so important to you. Mm -hmm. um, this is the, the the topic that I was most excited to discuss today. Would love to hear from you sort of your definition of values-based leadership, your journey with values-based leadership. Would love to just hear your perspective on values-based leadership at, at a high level. Yeah. Look, I, I think the, the importance of values-based leadership has been reflected back to us very acutely in this window here that we're, we're in, in that organizations and institutions, as we were navigating all the social disruptions, you know, businesses in particular, have been called upon to respond from a place of values um, and not just value and value, you know, along the, the spectrum of shareholders, value to customers and consumers, but values um, and, and ethics um, have come to the fore as expectations. And it's, you know, for some companies, I see it's a very fraught landscape. Um, but for others, such as the one that I, I work at, I, I have the privilege to work at and for, I, is, I, I have found amazing ease and fluency with us sort of, could, you know, just playing, playing, frankly, a hand that we were already pretty comfortable playing. And that there's a set of values built from a common mission. Um, you know, we're serve the world, you know, the food the world loves. And that mission was important, um, in particular in this part this window, and highlighted and engaging um, for the organization. But what also was at the center of that was a, a set of values around how we treat people, our role in the community that guided how we spoke to issues that came to us in this time when, when customers and employees were looking for the company to be more public and open about um, its view on, on any number of things. And I, I think for me, um, you know, what, what we are is kind of maybe at, at a different inflection point in, in, in capitalism. You know, capitalism starts with a, 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 the view on efficiency, and we, we know that is is far and away for all its 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 warts one of the most successful ways to unleash um, growth. It doesn't necessarily answer a lot of these social questions, but that doesn't mean that business doesn't have a role to play in addressing some of these social questions. So, as leaders, mm -hmm. the challenge for us is: where do you pick your spots? What you know? What kind of voice do you speak with? Um, and, and I think that the challenge for any leader in this window is you speak both for the company, you speak for yourself, and, you know, people are watching in a way that, that I, I think they haven't for a long time, um, corporate institutions. I mean, the, the level of trust in corporate institutions is generally higher than a lot of government institutions at this point, I might know, right? Now, that you can argue that's a, a low bar, but it, it also happens to be true, um, so, so I think, I, I do think there's, there's opportunity here for companies that are clear on what they're about, clear uh, and, and, and led by people who have the vision and the comfort to speak authentically to values to, to differentiate themselves. Um, and then lastly, I, I just, I think institutions as a whole do have a responsibility to society to, to answer some of these questions, right? I mean, part of the role companies play is to employ people to support the livelihoods of, of millions. Um, and, you know, it's hard to do that and have no concern for the particular moral 
questions in front of the people that you both serve and who work for you. Thanks so much for sharing. I appreciate it. And I was just muted as I was sneezing. I, I saw that. Here. <laughs> for all of our <laughs> listeners, forgive the delay. I'm like yeah, sneezing man, violently he, over he, here. He, <laughs> but it, you should be all be happy listeners that he, he put himself on mute. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to say, uh, Kofi, I, I really appreciate the point. Um, the opportunity that, that, that exists for leaders to authentically speak to values and have a set of values that they refer back to for hard decisions, for difficult decisions, or even issues that come up. I would love to hear, I guess, kind of two questions. Um, one, just a few examples of times where you felt you exemplified your values with your team and mm-hmm. how that impacted the way they interact with you, each other, right? How that impacted the business. Yeah. Um, and I mean, really kind of leveling up that, that a bit, um, we can talk about our values, but hard situations are where they get put to the test, right? Earlier in, in earlier this year, General Mills started going through a restructuring and was expecting to cut up to 1,400 jobs. Yeah. And as a leader, this can be extremely difficult to manage, I would imagine, as you or members of your team may fear that their jobs could be at jeopardy. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, that's one example that I think our listeners would be really interested in hearing about of where you, how, where you applied your values and how you throughout thought through difficult decisions from a values-based perspective. Yeah, uh, I, th- I think that's a great question. Look, I, I, and, and to your point, we did, we did um, take some organizational restructuring actions earlier this year. And, you know, part of the measure of, of values and how they show up when you, is when, when you go through and do the hard things, right. And, you know, it, it was, a set of actions taken to, to further our strategy. And, you know, I think you may have to trust me when I say, you know, when you, when you sit in a position like mine, it is very hard not to feel very personally accountable to everybody in the organization, including all of the people whose jobs are impacted when you make decisions like this. Um, the things that are super important from a value standpoint are being clear and transparent about the purpose and the need to act, um, being humane about how you deliver messages, honoring the, the service, um, sometimes decades long um, service of, of the people in the organization who, uh, who've, who've served with you. And then also painting a picture um, for the people remaining, um, the vast majority of people remaining at the organization about the future and where you're going to. Um, and, I think all those things can be done with an eye towards empathy um, and done with appropriate deliberation so they don't feel careless and wanton. Um, And even with that, you will still have, you know, sleepless nights and all the challenges that go with any decision, like any, any major tough decision. But I think the key is no different than the kind of challenges you face when you have something really, really negative happen in your community, like, you know, a, 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 an act of police violence, like we saw with George Floyd. And I can tell you that I, at that point, I was, I was first an employee and a, and a member of the community who saw this and, and was, you know, distressed. And then I turned to thinking within, you know, a matter of hours, okay, well, what, I'm a leader in this organization. What are we, what are we as an organization going to do? And by the time I had had talked to my CEO, he had already drafted a statement. I hadn't had to talk to him about it. And it's amazingly powerful when as a 
senior executive, senior black executive in an organization, I didn't have to push that conversation. I didn't have to push it because the values in the organization and the values of the leaders around me, and in this case, the leader above me, had already put the question on the table and we're, we're moving in that direction because our values would, would have guided us there, right? So I think that to me, those are the, the, the litmus tests of your values come when, when it's hard, not when it's easy, not when you, you drop press releases, but when it's hard and mm-hmm. maybe, um, you know, you know that it might even be controversial um, because mm-hmm. I, I guarantee you anytime you make a statement, of any sort, or you take a position of any sort, you are going to upset somebody. Um, and, and, you know, these days I, I think it, it, it may well be very public. Um, so you have to be comfortable choosing as a leader um, and choosing sometimes has that consequence. It's hard. It's, it's easier. It's easier to hear it and think we understand it than to actually experience it. I remember in my early days of, of being a leader, of being a you know, CEO of a small organization that's growing, but those moments where I made those decisions, where we labored over them, we stared at our mission, our values, our principles, and we debated, discussed, had dialectic. We really thought we were doing the right thing and that we had come to the approach that was best for our vision, our mission, for all of our, mem- our members. And there, well, there has always been someone who doesn't agree. Yeah. Um, who, who thinks that we're going maybe, off in maybe, the wrong direction. Maybe vociferously so, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I think you, you bringing up, you know, the, the, the killing of George Floyd and um, several others, right? We have sort of this kind of racial reckoning and awakening, I think, um, in terms of equity, equity and the disparities that we see in our society over the last couple of years. Yep. And, you know, we as a, as a human race have had to have this reckoning over and over and over again, um, as our consciousness and as equity continues to evolve and, and improve. And I'd actually like to pivot the conversation there for a few minutes. Um, last year, a figure in the wall street journal stated that less than 10% of CFO positions in the S and P 500 and fortune 500 were held by non-white executives. And another staggering figure in that same article found that only 12 of 675 sitting CFOs are black. And so I wanted to ask you, especially over the last couple of years, as a black CFO of a leading multinational company, have you experienced any added sense of pressure (laughs) that comes with being a representative in a position of power and influence of a historically underrepresented community? Yeah, look, I I think the short answer is absolutely. Um, I, I feel a tremendous responsibility to make sure that um, I I open the doors wider for people behind me. I think it should not be so that there are so few of us, um, and there's probably more now. Um, I, I I actually recently with along with a, a few other um, CFOs, uh, one of whom is Reggie Hayes. Uh, started a group, uh, uh, essentially a, a networking group for, for black CFOs, um, in, in part because I think we see this as, as work that needs to be done. But the other, the other is it is helpful to have a place where you can talk to people who are maybe wearing that, 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 that same multiple hat uh, leadership uh, mantle that you you've got to carry as as a as a black executive or as a female executive or as a you know a person of color in a, in a C-suite role, and that you you are an enterprise leader, you are a leader potentially of a function, 
you're a leader within a community, and then you're an individual who may be, you know, part of a, a group that is traditionally had less access to, to, to roles with this kind of power. And you're always kind of navigating and, and having to wear, you know, multiple hats um, and figure out which one you're wearing at any given time. And having, you know, a set of fellow travelers on that journey is incredibly useful. Um, but I do think the challenge is just that, as you said, which is there's still few. Um, there, there should be more. Um, there should be more um, and, and should have been more sooner. Um, so I'm, I'm glad we're talking about it now, uh, but there's still a lot of work to do. And, and frankly, the path to get there is, is still not um, overly easy. Um, there are a lot of places along the way where really, really good people of, of any background um, maybe miss out. And so I think the, the benefit of kind of sharing the experience of how do you get to this uh, role um, and talking about the, the challenges once you are in this role and, and working through them with a group of people who have those same challenges is, is exceedingly helpful. Uh, but I, I think you're, you're on the point. The point for me is more that you, you're wearing multiple hats at any given time. And at any given time, you probably need to pick up the one and wear the one that's heaviest. And last year for me, the one that was, was probably heaviest was the one around um, a lot of the, the racial and, and, and social injustice that was happening around us and was on display and in the public conversation and knowing that there were people in the organization asking and wanting and needing to have leaders speak to that and me being able to have a unique and both unique and authentic voice on those topics from my own experience. You know, in recent years, there's been this significantly increased focus on DEI, not only in finance, but in the rest of the business world. And I think the events of the last couple of years have obviously accelerated that. Do you think this increased focus has had any material impact yet? Or and I'm curious what impact you think it will actually have um, for financial professionals on the finance industry as well? Well, it's, it's interesting you say that. Um, I think it will, it, it is having an impact. Um, I, I've, I've, network with a lot of CFOs of, of public companies. And, you know, even, even last summer, um, not this last one, but the one before when, when George shortly after the killing of George Floyd, when we were talking about how companies were dealing with this, I remember one, one CFO, you know, unnamed CFO remarked something effectively, well, it's, you know, it's all about my pay grade, meaning I don't understand this. What's my role in this? And I kind of had to stop and say, you know, look, I'm just going to say this more as a point of observation. It can't always just be your, in this case, your, your, your black executives on your leadership team, because there probably aren't enough. And there probably aren't any on some of your leadership teams to speak to these issues. And yet your organization, it, it has people at lower levels who want and need to hear. And so I do think you know, increasingly CEO, CFOs are called into conversations on these issues. Um, ESG is a perfect example. It includes not only social issues, but sustainability and, and, and corporate governance. Um, and as you start to think about it, there are a lot of places there where companies are making commitments. Um, there, there's measurement um, that needs to happen. And CFO, and there's certainly a lot of funding in some cases, and CFOs need to be engaged in those discussions in ways that they weren't even two, two or three years ago. 
Um, so I so I do see a huge role for for CFOs and to play here. This is not just the province of of the CEO um, and and frankly even of other leaders in the business. But I think the CFO has a has a unique and important role to play. Um, and and mm -hmm. if, if you aren't ready for it, I would tell you it's coming either way. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're grateful that it's coming. We're grateful that it's coming. Um, on the scholars of finance team, we're excited to try to help create that shift as well and do whatever little part that we play, whatever little part that we can and do whatever we can to help. Uh, I want to actually transition here a bit, um, to some of your work outside of general mills. You've talked about a lot of these conversations that you have with other CFOs, with other leaders. Um, and I know that you've had a lot of conversations within the Aspen Institute for our listeners who don't know. The Aspen Institute was founded in 1949 and has since become one of the largest nonprofits in the world driving change through dialogue, leadership, and action to help solve the most important challenges on earth. And um, Kofi, our mutual friend, Chris Varellis, uh, founded the Finance Leaders Fellowship at the Aspen Institute, which has a mission very similar to Scholars of Finance. And you were a fellow in that program um, early on in this program's life cycle. Can you tell our listeners a bit about the Aspen Institute, the Finance Leaders Fellowship, um, your experience and how you th think that group will impact the future of finance? Yeah, I, I think one one of the reasons why you and I have have um, have built uh, such a bond is is I, I see the mission that you are embarking upon with, with scholars of finance is serving um, certainly early in people's finance careers of a need, a need around keeping values in the conversation for finance professionals. And I think it's important, by the way, if, if you look at, um, we have had over the course of, of, of a century and, and change of, of, of finance issues that, that maybe some of which have originated in Wall Street, there's very clear opportunity for finance to occupy a different perch and influence decision making at the individual level. But but I think that the thing that attracted me to Aspen was this idea that at the center of all of the things that we are doing in finance, we can enrich um, society and each other if we are we are proactive in thinking about the impacts of our decisions through an ethical and moral moral framework. Um, and you know it, it is it is rigorous from an intellectual standpoint in that, you know, it brings you into a conversation, starting with some of the great foundational philosophical touch points, everything from Aristotle to Machiavelli to, um, to, to, to uh, Confucius. And you, you are, you know, at all points along the way, being stressed to think about society, um, community and values in a very um, very different way. And some of those ideas compete with the things you believe. Some of them are, are confirmatory. And you are actually in a process of debating with other people who are kind of on the same path of figuring out, okay, what, are the, what do I want the center of my leadership to look like? I'm, and, and going through, you talked about being deliberate and practicing, but going through a deliberate process and, and of, of setting up a leadership model for themselves. What is the footprint I want to leave on the world as I go about doing my business in commerce? And what is the role of finance and finance's responsibility to the greater society? Does mm. finance not care about these issues as 
uh, you know, of, of, of equity and justice. Um, and is our job really just to go maximize um, shareholder value at, at, at all costs? Um, right? Or do we have a responsibility to the greater society to be thinking about contemplating those questions that aren't explicitly answered, even as we, we go out and find more efficient ways uh, to, to, to do X, right? I think those are the things that, that I find so attractive about the Aspen Institute and the Finance Leadership uh, Fellowship. And that is also the reason why yeah, I think you and, and I have, have built such a foundational relationship because I see that you are trying to do that and build that into the wiring of finance, a generation of finance professionals coming into, um, into finance and to have them be thinking intentionally about that at the front part of their career is an amazingly powerful concept. And, and you know, I've, I've, I, I'm tremendously inspired by the work you've done so far. Well, that is very, very kind of you. And I take that as a very, very high compliment. Uh, that means a lot. And my hope is that as our students, as scholars of finance, you know, age, call it 17 to 25-ish on a broad range, go through SOF, you know, through undergrad, freshman through senior year. Yeah. They remain an alumni, you know, now once they're in their mid-30s, you know, to mid-40s. 10 years later, 15 years later, they can then apply for round two, kind of the master class of this. And then they can apply to be a finance leaders, uh, and, and, and a leadership you know fellowship. That'll work. That'll work. We'll talk to Chris about it. <laughs> but, uh, we'll make sure to send him the episode. Is, 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 it would probably have something to say about it if, if you were alive. But I do think, <laughs> I do think we're in a different period. Right. I, and, and mm -hmm. I do think, I do think both of those, those, concepts can exist and coexist and can be self-reinforcing the notion of of shareholder value um, but also being being and doing um, good for society and being thoughtful about your footprint on society as opposed to um, you know ignoring those things and believing they aren't the province of business leaders um, I, I I think that's that's the core of the notion here for me um, that that fuels me because I believe that um, if I didn't believe that, I would have a hard time being uh, being in the profession I'm in. Right. Um, I know we have a couple minutes. So I want to ask you one last question. Sure. Um, I want to ask you about your increasing involvement in scholars of finance. Um, <laughs> last year, you spoke at what, kind of a softball. <laughs> last year, you spoke at one of our symposia. Thank you again for that, by the way. Um, since then, you've spoken to our members during the chapter speaker series. You've become a donor of Scholars of Finance. You've and become now, a, a, now I'm interviewed. I'm now being interviewed here. <laughs> yeah, and here you are in the podcast, sure. right? Getting increasingly involved, you know, be, being a mentor and friend of me, and, and just kind of helping guide me in, in the journey as well. I'm curious, what is it about Scholars of Finance that continues to keep you involved, and why might you encourage um, our listeners who might be learning about SOF for the first time to get involved, or even our current members to get more involved? Um, why SOF, Kofi? Yeah, look, I, I think there is. There's a lot of attention paid to how you get into a finance career in, in the professional training you get along the way. Um, and there's not a lot of attention paid to how you conduct yourself um, once you get there. And that, that foundationally is why I think you need an organization like Scholars of Finance, right? I, I will tell you, I'm going to tell you a story from early in my career and why I think Having an organization like Scholar of Finance can, can be exceedingly helpful for people. 
I, I was asked to do something that, that, you know, I didn't in my core think was right, even though the people in the chain, you know, probably we'll call it five, six levels above me had the authority to ask me to do it. And I was, you know, troubled by it enough to, to go ask for, you know, some, some professional advice from somebody in the organization who I trusted a crusty guy who, who, you know, just generally had a pretty gruff demeanor, but, but I think had a really, I, I knew had a really good moral compass and he just, I explained the situation and said, Hey, I don't know what to do. And he kind of looked at me and he said, that's BS. You know exactly what you want to do. You just, you are just looking for me to tell you that, that you should go do it. And he said, what's the worst thing that's going to happen to you? And, you know, he said, you're going to get fired. That's the worst thing. And he goes, if you get fired, what, what do you, what do you conclude? Do you want to, is this place you want to work at? If they'd fire you for doing something that you think is right, and you're, you're earnestly bringing it forward um, from, from a, a place of that positive intent, you know, I work there. So <laughs> I get out of my office, but, but I think for me, the value of an organization like Scholars of Finance is it, it will actually help you get in the mindset of thinking about the kinds of moral, ethical, and, and community impacts of the decisions you make before you start your career. And the power of that is if you think that way um, and you are, are, are training yourself to think that way, I think you are going to be a much more effective and engaged ambassador for the finance function, which, you know, I will tell you, we, we don't always get a great rap um, outside of um, our own community. Um, and that we, we are viewed as not caring about values and ethics and society. Um, and I actually don't think that's true from, from my own walks through the finance profession, um, but that there is a role for us to do to lift up both that perspective and then also to improve our impact and our footprint along the way. Um, and, and this organization is certainly a big part of how you help people, you know, think about how they conduct their, their careers and comport themselves and more important, the leadership that they project as they move through their career, um, even from the earliest days. Thanks, Kofi. I really appreciate that. I think one question we'll probably even start adding to the list of questions that we try to pose to our members is why do you want to go into a career in finance? Mm -hmm. now, Simon Sinek's famous start with why. Mm -hmm. um, I've been having a lot of conversations with some friends over the last week thinking that that would be a really, really rich starting point in the scholars of finance candidacy and membership journey. So maybe something that you and I can unpack yeah. a little bit and, and design on our next call. Um, yeah, I'm so I, grateful. I mean, I look forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> we need yeah. another hour for that one. <laughs> exactly. Um, Kofi, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the investing in integrity podcast have really, really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. The 50 ish, 55 minutes we've had is not nearly enough, obviously. And I'm excited to have you on again. Excited to have you continue to speak to our students. Happy to do mentor it. Mentor us, invest in us. Um, we're grateful for your leadership. And I just hope you have an amazing, amazing rest of your week and look forward to having you on again soon. Thank you very much. You're, you're too kind. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, 
and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. Thank you.